Welcome back to the podcast. We are the Princes of Cinema. Good morning and good evening, everyone. Today we are discovering or revisiting Modern Times and Gold Rush by Charlie Chaplin. You want me? You want me to go from here? Yeah, give us a little little idea of what these boys are about. So, this we're veering off. You know, last week we had a guest, or that was a couple weeks ago. We're getting wild. We're we're mixed. We're mixing it up. This is the remix edition. I think that's becoming our norm. Mm-hmm. I have a couple of things to say. First, we are not doing just one film. We're looking more at a director and his work. I want to propose to you on air. Maybe you're not ready for this. I think we do Chaplin Part One. I think we got to do Chaplin Part Two with City Lights and mm-hmm. with the Great Dictator. Just because it's like a he's really fun and yes. funny, and B. I think it's fair, like, during these films, because you could flip through them, you can glide through. We should just, for some directors, we should just look at directors, not always, like, you know. My question for you is, you know, what do you want from movies? What what are you really after? Because I I can answer that for you. I think you want pathos. (laughs) You want some sort of deep resolution for your own personal life. That's a little selfish, in my opinion. But... I think too. Movies can wow. just be you put it on me and then cut it down. <laughs> you don't have to accept those comments. Okay, I'm just kind of uh, floating them your way, you know. Yeah, I'm the type of guy who likes pathos, but it's not the, a worthwhile pursuit. Well, some I realize too in watching these movies, there's a little pathos, but a lot of this is just plain fun. And that's fine. And that's what movies can be. It's kind of what they probably were more of before we got more into dramas. I want to make a pitch also. This morning, as you're drinking coffee, because good morning, sunshine, you like to you get up at 11, I get up at 7. Combine the two, we have a convenience store. Um, I'm, I, I'm presenting to you, people can't see this. I got this blue, this cool blue Gatorade. Cool blue. This was given to me as a gift, all right, as a... As a priest with small budget, I don't buy a lot. But I'm saving this. I was going to drink this this morning just to kind of be be nutritious. I'm going to save this until we do a special. If I'm going to lobby for another fun film, we need to do eventually Jaws. I'm not going to... I'm not going to be happy until we do Jaws. I'm excited for it. I think it's... Yeah. Okay. You're uh, committing? Verbal commitment? Show, friend of the show, Patrick Keene gave us a hard recommendation on Jaws and I I'm okay with that alright so let's let's get a little bit about what these films we could do a little overview quick synopsis modern times modern times and then we'll do gold rush brief thing so I just watched these recently I'm trying to keep up with you because in quarantine you've been a classic movie athlete You've been racing. I'm, I'm, I'm playing catch-up. So I'm a little more fresh on the details because I just watched these, and you're already far ahead. First thing, Modern Times. It's about industry. I guess this reflects Chaplin's own childhood in London. He was twice conscripted in a factory, et cetera, and sent there. Um, it begins with this scene of just a herd of sheep, and then it shows rush hour, which is kind of automatically funny. Um, 
it then switches to a, a factory floor where there's this big muscular shirtless guy flipping switches. He's always what is his persona again? Chaplin always plays the same character. The little tramp. The little tramp. So here he's in industry. It's it's not given a clear setting in terms of which place. Here are the bullet points that I wrote down from my own memory. You have the assembly line, which is funny. He's trying to keep up. Then, to make a better assembly line, they have the lunch contraption, where they're feeding him on a little assembly line lunch, corn on the cob scene. Then he gets taken to the hospital because he has a, quote-unquote, mental breakdown. And the doctor tells him, in quotes, take it easy and avoid excitement when he's (laughs) discharged. I think a lot of the dialogue is really funny. And then you have this introduction of he always has to have a love, a lady to chase after. So you have these, this gamine community, these, these sort of kids scrapping around for firewood and fresh produce off of ships. So the woman's name is Ellen. There's always a, a woman. So Ellen kind of gets her introduction. He goes to jail um, because of his small petty crimes. In jail, he accidentally ingests cocaine in his which he thinks is salt he goes crazy um fights off a bunch of bad guys right he's always Turns fighting out he loves prison he keeps trying to get back to prison because there's food there what's that we read this in junior high that o henry story where the guy keeps committing crimes to get into to prison so he could just have a hot meal that's the same thing too i'm I mentioned this last time, but as a hospital chaplain, you have a lot of people who are struggling, poor, homeless, that are definitely checking into the hospital. I, Again, I'm not trying to create like a social comment, but it, it happens. So it's it's not just the 1930s. It's a, yeah. it's a social thing. I remember a woman who, mean, who, who got into bed and she immediately grabbed the menu. <laughs> and she's like, I want this and I want this and I want this. And I was like, oh, man, society. What? How am I supposed to reach out to you? So I didn't. I was just like, do your thing. I'm going to visit other rooms. She was busy ordering. Um, but yeah, just... I just mean, I will say from my own experience, I have had that recommended to me. Uh, I, w- I got stitches one night, and there was a man who had been transferred from the jail because he was planning on being sick. And he was... He told us directly that you get better food at the hospital. Right. But it ended up, I mean, everyone knows that that's the case, so they kind of ended up mistreating him. But, you know, he was a tough guy. I think he, he did all right. But yeah. I will say that I think this film has a lot of social commentary, and one of the shocking things about it for me was how much it paralleled our current modern times. Uh, you know, he's thrown in prison and beaten up by the police and into the back of a paddy wagon because he accidentally is marching in a communist parade. And then the other, the the paddy wagon itself, like that girl starts to cry, Ellen does. There's all these other normal-looking people, too. It's not a bunch of roughnecks, you know? Yeah. Just kind of people rounded up. And then when he's in jail, there's always this alternation between this cycle of... um, I mean, I will say one difference, though. I agree... That there are parallels, but there's also more of an emphasis on food. 
that people are really going hungry. Like even when he he and Ellen talk together about their dream house, like because remember they escape the paddy wagon, they like burst out the back door, they fall into the street, they run away. It's really funny. I, I thought that scene was so funny. How food oriented. Like here's their dream marriage, and he opens the door, and there are grapes hanging in the door. And he's eating grapes. He's peeling an orange and like kicking it out the window. He opens the kitchen door. There's a cow that he's milking. Then they like sit at the table and they put the steak between them and they like furiously cut the steak. It's like this is high romance. We're gonna yeah. eat in the same kitchen. It's like that's their first image of to be married, you know? Yeah. And even like when they get to, because he gets hired at the department store. That's like I think it's like part two. First, it's the factory. Mm-hmm. Then it's the department store. It's like both ends of industry, and he works in both ends. And that's kind of how the movie tails down. And even in the department store, they're just running from floor to floor. You know, the basement is the bar, so they're just eating a lot. Then they go and roller skate in the toy section. He almost falls off the balcony. Yeah. Then he like sleeps. He's found sleeping the next day underneath like well they're both sleeping under like clothes and coats and beds and yeah, yeah. she's in like a display right that's kind of the story i mean um she eventually they eventually moved to this shack which she prepares for him like 10 days after he gets arrested in the department store and she says to him in the quotes of course it's no buckingham palace and then he goes to the factory again there's that whole scene with uh like then eventually they end in a nightclub she's a dancer he's a waiter he ends up singing there's this whole scene with roast duck everybody's dancing and he's trying to get it to this demanding old man like where's my roast duck i've been waiting an hour i mean basically here's my ordering a roast duck right on the edge of a stage right but that's that that's the plot is assembly line jail department store nightclub it's just like scenes of modern life, and he's eventually trying to get the girl, and then they walk away into the sunrise, the dawn, and he says to her, buck up, never say die, we'll get along, and then the movie ends. Anyway. Yeah. I, I will say, I think this film is excellent. I think it's uh, very surprisingly funny for... For how old it is because comedy I think dates worse than other films usually just because what people think is funny and you know all some of these silent era guys doing a lot of wide eyes and goofy faces and and it doesn't translate as well but there is something he he sets up these little very simple games uh, so v- Right away, he's on the assembly line at the start, and he, his job is to turn these cranks. and And the the machine is there's a conveyor belt of, um, you know, widgets or whatever, and he has right. to crank them all. And it it's going too fast. Everyone's mad at him. There's a very mechanized sort of big face on the screen ordering people what to do it's very surreal even when he tries to like take a break smoking a cigarette in the restroom the guys the screen appears even there get back to work (laughs) yeah it's very 1984 right in some way and he's not able to enjoy himself really and he has a full nervous breakdown and then he eventually is out on the street trying to uh 
he sees a, a woman's dress that has buttons on it, and then he chases her because his job is to crank all the buttons as fast as possible. Right. And it's uh, one of the things that I read about this is that he came up with this concept after touring uh, the Henry Ford factory. And oh, no hearing, way. Yeah. And hearing of a bunch of people having nervous breakdowns. So funny. It's, yeah, it's the role of society and industry trying to turn people into these mechanized, machine-like beings, and it. Yeah, there's this funny and tragic. On a, on a on a personal note, yeah, it's it's complex socially. Like I mean, he's he's obviously there's a plight of the worker, and mm-hmm. that's that's true today. Even you know, it's like whether that was in America or London. Now it's in other countries of how like people are just forced into labor or cheap labor. Um, but there's also the other side of the commentary. I remember my dad who worked for Ford for the first 20 years of his career. He was just saying that when he first arrived at Ford in the 1980s, um, he working in the insurance side of things and working a so-called white collar job. And it was his first white collar. My dad was a mechanic beforehand for a bunch of years. And it's fun. I didn't know that. Yeah. He went to mechanic school near Pittsburgh, you know, and got his degree in in a liberal arts education in theology and then he became a mechanic because it's this american thing it's like you know you have to work actually and the funny thing too is he was saying also because of unions which can be good but they had driven wages so high that he was saying that assembly line workers for ford were making almost twice of what he was as an insurance representative for ford which just goes to show that there's always this competition in industry and it's sometimes the worker gets put down other times they can like fight i mean there are obviously more movies we could talk about with strikes so to speak but he remembers like that's why ford eventually pulled out of michigan and moved to mexico for most of their production um, which seems like oh that's like controversial but it was also just kind of financial it was just this decision to be like this is unmanageable Let's, I, I don't know more details than that. I'm just saying, like, there's always commentary from both sides, which I think is fair. I want to say this, though. Comedy is never pure social commentary, and I think that's what's refreshing, is that I think, too, like, why is this still funny? Physical humor is... I, there's something about physical humor that's always funny, you know? We had a good friend, Chris Madden, who would do like physical impersonations of dinosaurs and that sounds funny to Santa but like that that was really funny in 2005 and like when Charlie Chaplin is is dancing at the end to do his like his routine he eventually he forgets the lyrics right he writes the lyrics on his cuff links Mm -hmm. and he throws those off but he's doing this backward step it's not a moonwalk it's just kind of I I've just seen some dance moves out of him I was like I was like you go I I was fired up. You know, I, I think that is an interesting question of uh, where does social commentary and comedy overlap? Because if you look at the world of late night comedy right now, a lot of it is just absolutely mired in just commenting on the news right? for the most part. And I do think that there is something lacking about that. Like, I'm not going back and watching episodes of The Daily Show from three years ago. But how many times did you go back and watch The Ministry of Silly Walks by Monty Python? Yeah. Multiple times. I I do think, though, that good comedy 
involves a degree of social commentary or it needs to be saying something specific and universal about the human experience in order for it to resonate and have legs yeah right? i would ju- i would just say that those need to be two legs it has to be a balance is that social commentary right. is important but it has to have enough comedy where it's actually still funny and it's not just yeah. pure sarcasm pure worry you know totally i mean i mean like I, you even look at adam mckay's films like uh Anchorman or Talladega Nights or Step Brothers, the Will Ferrell, Adam McKay combo. Sure. They're all rooted in some conception, some sort of sociological idea about people. So Anchorman is the sexism of and the unwillingness to allow women into the workplace. Journalism, yeah. Step Brothers is about the uh, perpetual adolescence of adult men so it's taking a truth about our society and then finding ways of highlighting the absurdity in sort of concentrated ways so in this case it's actually sometimes it's better to be in prison uh, or because of how bad the world is or the uh, industries that we have and rely upon sort of strip people of their humanity. That is the sort of theory right? or the analysis, and then you show how that absurdly plays out. I think, and that's why, and I think that's why it so resonates, because that still feels true, because, you know. So let me switch to a tripod model to use camera language. Because oh, yes. there's also romance in every Chaplin film. He's always going after a girl. There's something about, or even take the films you mentioned, there's something about the balance between social commentary, just comedy, which is surprising and funny, and also going after the girl, so to speak, or whatever it is. But there's something about, um, yeah, I, I think a lot of the funniest scenes, and I would say like the 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 rounding note of hopefulness that things aren't all bleak is because two people can find each other and walk into the sunrise i mean that still moves people people still find comfort in our present day in that well i still have people that i love and i still have a partner etc i mean i i think in comedy it can seem like just a cat and mouse game between two people romantically involved um, but it's also kind of that plays into if, for instance, if 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 there if you remove all romance from Charlie Chaplin, the two films we've watched, um, it's they're they're not as funny actually, and they're not as meaningful, and they're not as well rounded. If it was just, I mean, I got, I I find him surprising and entertaining and every new scene in a Chaplin film keeps me wanting to keep watching. But some scenes themselves get a little tiresome, like. The pure assembly line scene, which then goes into Big Brother, which then goes into the lunch scene. After 15 minutes, I was a little tired of that. But then you introduce, a, you know, this, this, this girl he's after. Then they go to a department store. It's like, all right, I'll keep watching now. Take another example of The Office, for instance, which was one of the most successful comedies, which had social commentary. Um, but if Pam and Jim were not interested in each other in season one, I don't think you have a season two that as many people tune into. There's just comedy, I think, involves concerns, but it also involves like that whole caring aspect of, of humanity. Comedy, concerns yeah. and caring. That's my tripod. I think that's a recipe that I'm saying right now is it. 
<laughs> you got that? I think, it, I think that makes sense. That's and diagnostic. If we still had Aristotle's comedy, we'd be able to find exactly that. Oh, yeah. Because, like, with tragedy, you can look at the social commentary, but you don't have that uplift. Right. Or, But the whole thing about the romance puts me into the... Uh, world of the gold rush the other film we watched. let's let's do and that i will say some of the some of the most heart-wrenching kind of absolute cringing moments was the new year's eve party oh yeah and maybe we can build up to what this film was about but it's well, basically chaplin is a and help me out here chaplin is going out west to join the gold rush. Alaska, in, yes, in west, Alaska. northwest. Yeah. He is in Alaska, and there's a whole bunch of people desperate who need to make a better life. So they're going into the wilderness, essentially not knowing at all what they're doing. And then there are these little towns that have popped up where he is helping out. And essentially, I think, he gets stuck in a house that he finds that some big bad guy so let me give you a little rundown um there there's this cabin well there there are a couple things big jim is a main figure he's kind of competing with big jim and they're in this cabin together weathering the storm it's also this murderer fellow prospector black larson just the, the names are like and he's still called the tramp and the woman here is called georgia and every time she appears four times the scene just shows up and it just says georgia <laughs> like, she keeps getting introduced yeah but basically they're they're like it's simple it's it's they're they're, they're competing with each other they're trying to weather the storm a couple people are killed by black larson but because it's a comedy it's not taken too seriously um big jim and him First, they're competing. Like Big Jim finds gold. I actually noticed this. This brings up a quick point. I didn't realize that Chaplin not only directed, wrote, acted in his films, but he's also the composer for the entire soundtrack. Mm. Um, and he begins this one at, it, with with a little rendition of "You take the high road, I'll take the low road." That was like the opening theme, you yeah. know. And I'll be in Scotland for ye. You know the one I'm talking about? Tearjerker. <laughs> But basically, he and the people are trying to outdo each other. They're in the cabin. Someone declares, I must have food. And they have Thanksgiving dinner eating an old boiled shoe, which is really funny. Which, on a side note, I do have a friend who, studying abroad, was in Switzerland. This is Ethan Moore. You've met him. Who... Uh was with other guys. They went to this local, local bar in this small Swiss town. And they got really rowdy. And they weren't used to American students being there at all. And the guy, the bartender, literally took the the, the inside sole of his shoe and, like, put it... They had ordered a ham sandwich, and he, like, served them a, a shoe sandwich. <laughs> no lie. My friend, like, bit into it, and he's, like, trying to eat it. They're all laughing. Like, it was kind of like the guy was trying to offend them to say, like, get the hell out of here. Yeah. And um, they just kind of kept... There was a little... Uh, no lie. Did um, they win him over? I think By sort of. But they, they, they won him over yeah. for a few laughs, but it was kind of like, you need to leave soon. Yeah. Um, but then, yeah, essentially, after this, like, weathering the storm and looking for gold... 
he turns into a chicken, which is actually just a mirage. Like, Big Jim thinks he's a chicken. He's shooting at him. These I actually, are two absolute classic cartoon tropes. Right. Where, I mean, as soon as you see the shoe, you're hoping to God that they put that shoe in the boiling water and that you're going to see a man cut fork and knife into a shoe. And then it happens. And, and it's like... And dissolve into the chicken. But it's not... It's not cartoons like these are real men eating a shoe on camera (laughs) it's great it's very funny and part of it is funny because you're seeing the origin of one of the most famous gags in i don't know comedy history and even things like i mean this I, i don't i'm not sure this is social commentary in in the sense it is today but there's also a lot of guns involved in this and it's uh-huh. that's kind of cartoonish as well both men are fighting over the rifle and like the the physical humor is they're 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 fighting over it and the third party the the, the tramp he's like they're constantly aiming at him as they're struggling over this rifle and yeah. he he runs around the room for a minute and a half trying to get out of range <laughs> which which is really funny. It, it's yeah. I don't know. I found myself laughing as a thirty three year old, like alone watching this <laughs> black and white film. But after I mean, let, let's get to the scene too, because you're talking about New Year's Eve, even Georgia. So he meets her at the at the Monte Carlo dance hall in town. Mm-hmm. She's obviously interested in a bigger, more more manly man than him. That's the trope. Is she? She's always wearing the same sparkling dress. Is she a dancer? She's she's just kind of a partier. She's just kind of a local. Yeah, I think that's right. And she's into like another guy that's like broader, more muscular, and yeah, the tall guy, the tall the guy, tall guy. But to but to to avoid dancing with him because that's cat and mouse. She dances with Charlie Chaplin, the tramp, to be like, save me. But. He's all enamored, and she's not. She's just using him. Eventually, she stumbles into him a second time while snowball fighting. Uh, She stumbles into his cabin. He goes out to, like, prepare some firewood. She, she, like, peeks under his pillow with her girlfriends, and there's a photo of her. And then that's kind of the heart-wrenching thing is they play games with him because she knows he's in love with her. She says, sure, let's let's meet on a date, um, New Year's Eve. New Year's Eve happens. He sets up. He, like, begs around town. He sets up this, like, fine dining meal, and no one shows up. And They're he's slowly showing shots of the time passing, and he's got this whole thing laid out. He had to do the whole uh, shoveling bit. Right. Where he's shoveling snow back and forth between businesses in order to earn money. That actually, and she, meanwhile, when when he's waiting alone at the dinner table, like, at midnight, like, she has two pistols. She's standing on the bar, like, firing these guns to be like, Happy New Year. And then, then she realizes that that she's forgotten, you know, like, oh, we forgot about him. We promised we'd be there at 8 o'clock. And also the tall guy uh, dismisses her, right? What happens, yeah, well, what happens is that they actually go in search of, she's been avoiding him, even though she's kind of giving in to him. They go in search of him in the cabin, but he's already wandered out after midnight in his depression um, to, like, look for them. So So they come to the cabin, but it's empty. He, the tall guy, tries to make a move on her and kiss her in the cabin and she slaps him and there's this whole sort of falling out but it's just they're 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 crossing they're not they're like ships in the night that phrase they don't see each other passing 
Yeah. Um, until in the end, I quickly, that is one of the most heart wrenching scenes of him preparing this meal, being led on, and no one shows up. Um, yeah. I've actually been Why through that. Why is that so devastating? Why is that so devastating? I don't know. I think it's because like someone's really sincere and someone's playing with him. But there's also something about a meal and preparations. I remember one time it wasn't romantic. I was living in Denver and we had had this, this house of three girls coming over to have dinner with us three guys. And again, it really was out of friendship. But they called... I think they called an hour before and said, "Hey, we can't make it." And we were already cooking, mm-hmm. and it was, it was, it was. I was really angry. <laughs> There's a certain sort of. I remember another time too. I had prepared. I was living senior year in college, um, and was just eating like buttered pasta and oatmeal. I was like not eating well, but it was like lazy man's eating. I w- I had the small meal card. Like I would occasionally go to the cafeteria and. Um, but I remember cook, cook getting by. I remember cooking for myself once this chicken, like this, like an actual recipe. And I remember eating it alone and feeling so depressed and vowing to myself, like, I'm never doing this again. <laughs> this is so there's something about like meal prep alone or when someone cancels, which for some reason is devastating. That's funny. I mean, not to. I'm not, okay eating by myself, and I would say the vast majority, I mean, especially now, of meals are solo. But. I'm sorry the to idea hear that. Of, uh, you know what? I, I've found that I like making food for people sometimes. Like, I'm, we got a grill out on the grill, making pastas. But it. There is there is something about putting days of thought into work and work into something, and then than it just not being important to someone else. And especially is. getting shot down, like romance is like one of the strongest sparks in human experience to be like, oh gosh, something new might be happening. And even when it's brand new, it's still like for that to get shot down is is actually kind of serious always. Yeah. It is interesting. The female characters in Chaplin's films, or at least these two, are somewhat nuanced in a way that maybe you wouldn't expect. And I think that there is some analysis about that where once they released some of the codes that prevented nudity right a lot of the parts for women became uh less nuanced i mean they're obviously not the focus here and these aren't the two films you point to showing a depth uh, a weighty portrayal of the female experience but right you know, in the first film, uh, the woman, Paulette Goddard, who uh, was his wife after that, or at that time, has this, she's this Aladdin figure, going, stealing bananas, feeding her sisters, their father is unemployed, and she's taking care of the whole family. And then her and father, her father dies. Shot. Yeah, yeah, her father's shot in the street. And then they're put into the care of the state uh, as wards or something. But it's, you could uh, tell from the beginning, like, she's also really beautiful. Oh, It's yeah. just kind of like, here's, like, this, like, really well-kept, beautiful, homeless girl. <laughs> oh, I wonder what might happen, you know? <laughs> yeah. Strikingly so. And I watched it with some friends, and... Everyone, everyone was just like, she is so gorgeous. And 
kind of in a way I was like she looks like she's walking around Brooklyn right now right she looks like she looks like she's 2020 not 1920 it's really kind of I don't know if it's her eyes maybe her hairstyle yeah it's somewhere her hair and her face her face just sort of stands out it's like very clear where I feel you look at old faces maybe it's the makeup or something but they just look off or their eyebrows are the wrong shape. It's like it's like typically dressed women in the twenties. We look at it's just oh, it kind of looks like old. But you you see like a homeless woman in the twenties. You're like wow, she's so she's yeah, so attractive. Did you get that in anthropology? <laughs> <laughs> what does it say about our fashion? I'm not commenting on fashion. I know nothing about it. This is not a fashion podcast. Now it could be if we keep watching these films. I know. I mean, she is she is alluring. So is so is the other one. I mean, both women are, but I think both women too. You're right. They're 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 both pretty, but they're also nuanced in that they're not just a woman for him to woo. Like they all have a life of their own. One is you know the first Ellen is actually trying to survive and stay out of prison. Georgia is kind of this local girl that's tied into a local scene, and here's a guy that's not local. yeah, I definitely think they're just based on regular human situations. You know, it's not like either of them are, you know, who's the woman, J- Jessica Chastin in Zero Dark Thirty, like this Z- woman CIA agent to track down Osama bin Laden. It's not like there's this specialty, like this woman with this particular mission. But it's like, here's, here, here's a woman in a realistic life situation with depth. And you can show that actually quickly with no words mm-hmm. and with just a few gestures. It's, it's just surprising how much you can create character depth by just facial expressions, uh, body language, and also just a few situations like tell a lot of a person's story. It's actually really impressive. Yeah, it is interesting to see how... Because I was, we should also probably say that Gold Rush is a silent film. I don't think there's any dialogue really in it, right? right? In modern times is for the most part too. I guess the thing is at the very end you hear him sing a song and that's the first time his voice is heard on... In garbled French, something like that. Yeah, he, which honestly... The song slaps, and it's great. Oh, yeah. It's very catchy. Um, but, yeah, the the way that there, you have to communicate the story without as much obvious dialogue, it's, um, it is profound for comedy. And it does, and I think to your earlier point, it shows how physical comedy actually can be. And he's also kind of a perfectionist, they say, of Chaplin. You know, he spent years kind of editing and producing his movies after, yeah. They said on Modern Times, the shooting schedule was 170 days. And in total, it was 415 days, I believe. And usually the production schedule and stuff is, at the time, was 50 days. And uh, actually... Paulette Goddard and Chaplin worked again on The Great Dictator and his his uh, just intense, maybe domineering directing style led to the dissolution of their relationship. Right. Because of you get you get that in music, doing you know, take after take after take. Like McCartney and Lennon. I mean you get yeah, collaboration's tough in art, you know. 
There's there's you throw love in the mix. What? Yeah, you you don't working in art. You don't you're not like in a company where you you're working together. But you're actually doing separate work. You're working on the same central thing, which is a product. You know. Yeah. And that's tough. Um. I, I wanted to mention this too. So, I th- you know in in the end it kind of turns out okay as he gets he gets the girl in the last one and. I guess they walk off into the sunrise in hopes of a job and a life together. Um, in the gold rush, he strikes it rich. I mean, they they almost get their their cabin blows through the storm and almost gets blown off a cliff, a la Jurassic Park Two: The Lost World. You get a building falling off a cliff and people escaping by ropes. I'm just saying this is this is in other it's movies. Everywhere. It's everywhere. <laughs> and then he he of course meets her on the boat back home where he's a millionaire and she she's a little bit of a gold digger in that that's a little bit of a cheap shot is that she doesn't have she feels bad for leading him on um but she kind of falls for him only when he's he's rich. That is true. That I remember that being just a weird quick turn. Right. I agree. Where he comes into money suddenly. And then she turns about face. I think that's a little bit of a check against the human side of the film. I mean, I'm not saying that doesn't happen where yeah. gold digging, both men and women involved, is a social thing as well. So there's a little social commentary on every angle. But when it comes to the human story, it's a little less sincere than yeah. modern times when it comes to their pairings. Yeah, I'd say Gold Rush is a less feminist film than right. maybe we previously portrayed it to be. She's very flawed, though. I don't know. I guess there's something to be said for that. And he, I don't know, how about he as a character? He's kind of the same character in every film, but he's he's sort of bumbling but good. It's almost like the man who gets pushed around, but he makes it in the end. I don't know if, again, yeah. I don't think his his plots are funny in the commentary, but his character, personally, as the tramp... I don't know how deep that character is. Is it kind of like your everyman? Yeah, an everyman trying to get by who the world keeps pushing down. I mean, there's different ways of framing comedies. And this is a very British construction of a comedic figure where... um, I remember, I think it was John Cleese was talking about American versus British uh, comedies. And he was pointing to a scene from Animal House where John Belushi sees a guy at the party playing a guitar and he's getting really into it. And then Belushi grabs the guitar and smashes it to bits. And he says that American comedians want to play the guy, Belushi, smashing the guitar. But a British comedian wants to be the guy getting his guitar smashed. That's fascinating. Yeah, you can see that here where the world is happening to him. So he... There, yeah, there's different ways of framing a comedy where you are an oddball in the world, a normal world. Maybe you look at some of the Jim Carrey films, like Ace Ventura or The Mask, that way, where he's this big, outsized character, and, the, and he is the unusual thing. But in this, it's more that the circumstances and the social environment... Uh, are imposing themselves onto a character who is by and large fairly normal although uh, flawed and 
a little bit just incompetent. Right. And he moves funny, you know. He's trying, he has goals and desires, but he can't achieve them really. I'm actually I'm actually impressed are you saying he's move I agree with what you said moves funny I'm actually impressed by his physical movements slapstick humor Oh it's very good For real humans to be doing this and not drawn cartoons it's I was thinking of for instance I mean some of its situations not too complicated like I really liked the scene in Gold Rush where he's dancing with her but he accidentally has a dog leash tied to him <laughs> and then the dog chases a cat it's like I mean that's not so talented or or the, he, his 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 wrapped up foot catches on fire under the chair with the ladies over for their little cup of tea, right, but but right. some of it you know when 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 he gets the New Year's invite, and they agree to come over. There's that amazing film where he's smashing the feather pillow and he's doing handstands and he's knocking flower jars off the shelf. That was like really explosive and amazing. And he's doing handstands and then in the midst of that, she walks back in. And she says, I forgot my glove. He's <laughs> just totally embarrassed. Like, some of, some of the physical feats are really impressive. This, you're going to laugh at this, but I actually thought, wow, this guy's physically talented. When, he, when he's sitting alone at New Year's Eve night, and he's imagining if they came over, and he, they ask him to give a speech. They're so like, speech, speech. And he, uh-huh. he, he stumbles, and he says, instead, I'll do a dance. And he takes those two little tiny bread rolls, and he puts forks in oh, them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he does that little, like, shoe dance with bread. I actually, I actually <laughs> thought during that scene, I was like, this is so impressive. <laughs> it was it really is, good. I think, a, I think it's a famous, famous scene. There's... There, I think in Gold Rush, you've got more of these moments that have individually, out of context of the film, lasted, like right. turning into a turkey. or, or And it shows you, too, like, even it, it made me think how much dancing was with people's legs back then. That's true. You know, people would dance with their feet in certain patterns and mix the pattern. And he's doing that with loaves of bread. And it's really funny because yeah. of his facial expression. He's really serious. <laughs> But at the same time, I'm thinking, like, this is so impressive, this bread dance. Anyway. I would love to see you do that. Maybe throw it into a homily? Yeah. Get people going? I, I could probably... The trouble with, yeah, physical humor. You, but you could just use the hands, right? We'll see how that goes over. <laughs> so let's... It feels like the time for evaluations. What are, uh, what are they? You know, I think, for me personally, Modern Times is a great comedy. And I, and it has to be a benchmark for any comedy film that is looking to stand the test of time. I, I think throughout it's entertaining. It has a lot of different sections uh, that, that have have a good set piece feel while still carrying a consistent thread. The Gold Rush, I think, has a lot of very funny moments in it, too. I don't, and it has very sort of heart-wrenching moments. I don't know if it holds up as it, on its own as a film for a modern viewer as well. But, I mean, these are both top... These are dinner table films for me. Oh, Although, really? Modern oh, Times really? Is. Modern Times is a dinner table f- film. Gold Rush might be lunch. It might be more of a kitchen table because it's, uh, you know, you're with the kids, you're eating potato chips. 
it, it's fun or popcorn oh yeah is a better one see um, here's my evaluation more I want to see a little more. I'm, I'm, I'm going to actually defy rankings. I'm going to say we've, we've done our rankings. I'm going to say I, I, want to, I want more. I want to do together Great Dictator. It doesn't have to be exactly next. I want to do uh-huh. um, City Lights. Apparently, that's his best, but you don't like it. Rumor on the streets. Uh, I just tried to watch it late one night, and I didn't watch all of it. we we got to give that. It's than these, so it's more silent. Okay. And, uh, yeah. We got to look at those. I think I think we I think we punt here when we say let's let's rank Chaplin when we I think we need round two. I also think not only more Chaplin, a little more slapstick. We got to consider doing some Marx Brothers movies in tandem, oh, just yeah. because that's a good comparison. And I haven't seen those from since high school, and I loved them, but that was a long time ago. Yeah, I remember those made a pretty big impact on us in high school. Oh yeah, Duck Soup. And- and then even yeah. when we wrote our own theater and stuff, I mean, I think certainly there was Marx Brothers physical humor in our own theater, our own videos, our own, our own products, productions. So I got to head out. Um, I'll see you next time at the Monte Carlo Dance Hall. I'll see you there. I'll bring uh, the roast duck. Hopefully I can get it to you. Right. Better than <laughs> a shoe. Caught on a chandelier. That's right. It does get caught on a chandelier. Thank and you for. It finally th- makes it there, and the duck is gone. And then, and then the guys imitating football players—they actually like steal it next and hike it and pitch it and toss it around. Nothing ends up well except for human life as a whole. I guess that's kind of the hopeful note. Particulars go wrong. In general, it can all work out. Yeah. Let's revisit. Let's revisit. All right. Thank you, Tim. Thank you to our listeners. Sliding along, gliding along. Gliding along. Do a dance. See you now. <laughs>